Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Exodus 3. If you're choosing to use the Pew Bible, it is on page 46. Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. 
and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of God. Good morning again. It is so good to be together, to worship our Lord together, and to experience his grace in our gathering. As you heard, in Exodus 3, we are studying the book of Exodus. This first section is called From Slavery to Glory. From Slavery to Glory, Exodus. God's rescue of Israel from slavery, taking them out to Mount Sinai with his presence, then going with them, being among them. This is the defining story of the Old Testament. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, they, they always refer back to this as being, this is who God is. This is how God made us his own. This is how he has rescued us. It's one of the, also one of the greatest pictures of the gospel. To understand the message of Exodus is to understand the message of Jesus Christ. And that is why we're studying it. Today's message from Exodus 3, our God who makes himself known. It is not an exaggeration to say that Exodus 3 is one of the most important chapters of the Bible, if I could put it that way. In fact, God does something here uh, that he's, he doesn't do anywhere else in Scripture. It's really unprecedented. He, he tells us his name. God is revealing his character to us, what he is actually like. And please hear me. There is nothing more important than that. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, said this. Please listen. Quote, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, is Tozer's claim. If that is true, that means we better think rightly about God because if we have the wrong picture, then everything in life is going to be out of whack. It's going to be messed up. But if we are increasingly having a right picture, a clear picture of God, then what happens is everything else comes into perspective. Tozer continues, for this reason, he says, the gravest question, the most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man or woman is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our own mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. 
always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. It is absolutely vital that our view of God be aligned with what He is actually like. Many people will often say to me, I don't like God in this way. I don't think God is like this. I think He's more like that. Or I would rather worship a God who is more loving and not holy or not just. And, and, and my answer, with all due respect to you or anybody who would ask is, who gives you the right to shape God into an image that is acceptable to you? The reason, I get it, the reason this thinking is so appealing is that because it actually allows us to be God. We shape God into our image rather than Him shaping us into His. And I'll be the first to admit that as much as I sometimes think that I know better than God, that I could do a better job than Him if He would just give me the reins, give me control. As much as I like to think that, all I have to do is look at my own life to see empirical evidence, I'm not the best at doing life. I can't even handle one life, let alone y'all's life, let alone the universe. Tozer's conclusion is spot on when he says, quote, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. And a rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. This morning, my, my prayer is that there would be a rediscovery of the majesty of God. Whether you're a Christian or not, to know that your greatest need today is for a fresh encounter with the God who makes himself known. Let's look at Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Here's our first lesson. Learn to trust the strange timing of God. Learn to trust the strange timing of God. Verse 1 tells us that Moses is living in Midian. He's not in Egypt. He's in the wilderness and he's working as a shepherd. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law. And, and now I know this doesn't quite come out in, in, in English, but in, in the Hebrew, there's a, a nuance of the verb here in verse 1. And here's how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be read like this. Now, after all these years, Moses was still keeping the flock of his father-in-law Midian. It's meant to communicate this idea that it just, he just keep, he's been doing it and doing it and doing it. And really what it's meant to communicate is that Moses' life really seems like a dead end. Here's the guy who was heroically rescued at birth by his mom, put in a little basket, Nile River, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in a palace, educated among the finest men and women of, of the land, well-connected, well-to-do, wealthy and then one day he, he realizes he's an Israelite, right? He's a fellow Jew. He's, he's a part of the Hebrew people. And he sees a fellow Israelite getting beaten by an Egyptian. And just something goes off in him. And he can't take the oppression any longer. And in a fit of rage, he kills that Egyptian. And the Pharaoh is, about, is trying to kill him. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he runs for his life out into the desert. Look, by Exodus 3, that was 40 years ago. 40 years, he has lost everything, his status, his connection to his people, his reputation, and now he's a lonely and lowly shepherd 
His failures have literally shaped his life. We might say, he's all washed up. Suffice it to say, Moses' life did not turn out as he planned. Can some of you relate to that? Ever felt like life threw you a curveball? And you know, one curveball is not a big deal, but when that curveball is like strike your out, that kind of stinks. That hurts. Maybe it was a health struggle. Maybe it's been a broken relationship. Maybe it's been an unfulfilled dream. I I know, maybe it feels like I'm in the wrong job. Like, I'm in the wrong relationship. I've had people people tell me that. Like, I made a mistake way back then, and that was it. Like, now I'm stuck in this relationship. And now it's so hard that I realize if I could have done something different, I wouldn't have gotten into this. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have chosen that. And now, look, I'm in the wrong this, wrong that, and that's it. I'm on a dead end. It's over. And yet for Moses, just like when it seemed like he was at a dead end, that's precisely when God chose to show up. Do you see that? What does this teach us? It teaches us that God is not in a hurry. It teaches us that his plans don't fit into our timetables. It teaches us that God's delays may not be what we want, but they may be exactly what we need. God was preparing Moses to be a mighty leader, a shepherd of his people, And so what does he do? He gives Moses time to learn how to lead and how to train him to be a shepherd of actual sheep. Look, I don't know what God is doing in your life, but you may be going through a season of waiting, even discipline. But God, I believe, I know God is shaping you to be the person he has called you to be and to do what he's called you to do. But I know this as well. God is not in a hurry as much as we are. Do not despise your season of waiting. Be faithful in the ordinary routines of life. God's delays always work out for your good and our glory. Sorry, your good and his glory, even when you don't see it. Learn to trust the strange and yet brilliant timing of God. Lesson number two, be in awe of the majestic holiness of God. It says Moses is faithfully shepherding Jethro's flock, and it led him to exactly the right place at exactly the right time. He was on the west side of the wilderness, and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai later in Exodus. This is the wonder of God's providence that Moses arrives here at this time In this place where in just a few years, God would send his glory back down once again and give Moses the Ten Commandments. And it says here in in chapter 3 that Moses sees the, the strangest thing. He's on the west side of this mountain. He's got his sheep there with him. And he's walking and it says he turns and he sees a bush that is on fire but not being consumed. And that's what catches his attention. Look, as a shepherd in the wilderness, I'm sure he has seen things burn up before. That's not surprising. But to see a fire that doesn't actually consume the bush, that raises his eyebrows. And it says he turns aside to look at this fire, which turns out to be the presence of God. Fire is often used in the Bible as a symbol of God's presence. 
If you remember the book of Genesis we studied a couple years ago, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham to, to do this elaborate ritual that involves walking between flaming pots to prove that God himself would be the fulfiller of this covenant. Later in Exodus, when God meets the Israelites at Mount Sinai, right here, God's presence will again come down in fire. Why does God choose to reveal himself through the symbol of fire? I think this is significant. I want to camp here for a minute. Fire is unique in that it does two things at the same time. It draws us in, and it keeps us at a distance. It, it, fire is both um, mesmerizing and yet dangerous at the same time. As the weather's been getting a little cooler in the evenings, our family has been enjoying this little fire pit that we have in our backyard. The kids love the fire. I love the fire. I think Danny Best, you know, she tolerates the fire. But we, we enjoy hanging out together as a family, right? We enjoy being around a fire pit. Why? Fires are warm, right? They, they warm you up and they're very inviting. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you enjoy sitting around a fire, Right? We, we do that. We, we enjoy fires. In fact, we are so crazy, we put fireplaces in our homes. I mean, we want to light a fire inside of our houses. That's how much we enjoy and love fires. Fires have this ability, right? It's, it's bright. It's brilliant. It, it's dazzling. It's mes- Sometimes I, I literally caught myself the other night just staring at the fire. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't know, but it's just, it's mesmerizing, right? It's inviting. It draws us in. That's what happens for Moses. The fire draws him in. It's a draw for him. But the other thing we know instinctively about fire is that they keep us at a distance. A fire is hot. And yes, it can keep you warm, but if you get too close, it will burn you. You can't play with fire, right? That's a saying, don't play with fire. Right? You can play with other elements that are, that are natural and pretty amazing, like water, right? You can, you can manipulate water. You can play with water. Dirt, you can manipulate dirt, play with dirt. Fire, you can't manipulate it or play with it. You just have to be in all of its power. A fire draws you in and it keeps you at a distance. That's why a fire is a perfect symbol for the presence of God. Moses turns aside and he sees this fire. No ordinary fire. It's really, and I'm going to teach you a theology word, a theophany. Theophany. You can go home and kind of brag to somebody that you learned a new word. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm talk- we were learning about theophanies today in church. Yeah, what's that? Well, I don't know, but he said it. Theophany. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany. It's a visible manifestation of the presence of God. A visible manifestation of the presence of God. In other words, this was no ordinary burning bush. This was the presence of God manifested right before Moses' eyes. And God literally calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And that's when Moses responds like, here I am. <laughs> What's going on here? Verse 5, look at this. Then he said, God said to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This is the first time in the Bible that the word holy is connected with God. What does it mean that God is holy? It means he is separate. 
It means he is distinct. Holiness is God's otherness. He is other. He's not one of us. He is other. It's what keeps him set apart. It's what keeps him at a distance. It's what makes him completely unlike anything else that exists. God is perfect. We sang in the song earlier, God is perfect and pure. Not even a hint of sin. Not even a hint of imperfection in him. And here's what we need to understand about God's holiness. God's holiness is not a passive attribute. It is an active force. Anytime God's holiness is on display, it either embraces what is holy or it destroys all that is not. That is why the Lord cautions Moses from coming too close to the bush where his holiness was manifested. The fear in Moses led him to to look away. Not in, not in the fear of like a lowly in the face of someone who's almighty. Not in the, the sense of I'm the creator, created and you're the creator. No, he turns away as the fear of a sinner who's in very real danger in the presence of holiness. God's holiness could have consumed him. That's literally why God warns Moses, keep at a distance. It's signifying his holiness, his set-apartness. Don't come any farther. There's a fire here. Don't get too close, kids, because you may get burned. Step away. It's important. It's drawing you in, but you can't, you can't be chummy with it. That's why Moses had to take off his sandals. Even today in the Middle East, removing one's shoes is a sign of respect. Moses was showing proper respect and reverence to God. Obviously, there's more to God than his holiness. Right? There's his love, there's his grace, but right here we are confronted with the weight of God's holiness. And we have to realize God is not your buddy. God is not our pal. He's not the big guy upstairs. Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire. We need to recapture the majesty of God, as Tozer says. Maybe the issue t- today is not that we don't feel close enough to God. And we, we wanna, we, oh, I want to feel God's love. I want to feel his, his tenderness. Maybe so. But I think part of the reason we're struggling as a people is we don't have an idea of God's transcendence, his otherness, that we don't have a proper awe of God. That if he were here right now, just like Moses, we'd probably be apt to turn our face away. The theological term for this is God's transcendence. God's transcendence means that he's above us. He's beyond our comprehension. He's superior. Do you worship a God who is greater than you? Or do you worship a God that you have created to kind of um, manage, to kind of meet all your needs, to make all your dreams come true. A God who does that isn't God because the real God will contradict you at times. The real God will challenge you at times. The real God will say things that you don't like. If God never said anything you didn't like, he may not be the real God because you would be God because all of your thoughts would be the right thoughts. Does your God, does God, do you understand that God is holy? That his otherness inspires all in your heart? Like a fire, God's presence is meant to invite us in. And we'll talk more about that later, but it's also meant to to keep us at a distance, to terrify us in a sense. 
Be in all of this majestic holiness. Number three, find your identity in the self-sufficiency of God. As God reveals himself in this burning bush, he doesn't just reveal his holiness to Moses. He also reveals his covenant history with his, his forefathers. In other words, God is revealing himself not as a new God. He's not saying, Moses, I'm a new God in town. Let me introduce myself. No. He's saying, I'm the God who's already entered into relationship with your great-great-great-grandfather Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and all your fathers. He's saying, I'm the God who's been preserving a people throughout all these generations. And notice he doesn't say, I was the God. Notice verse 6. He doesn't say, I was the God of your father who's now dead. I was the God of Abraham. No, I am the God. Jesus takes these words and he quotes them in the Gospels and he, and he says, this proves God is the God of the living, not the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive because they're an eternal covenant with this God who says, I'm the God of the living. I'm still their God. They're not gone. Once God enters into this relationship with someone through grace, that relationship is eternal. And then notice what God says, verse 7 that I've seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries. I know, listen how deep this, I know their sufferings. That word know is a word for intimacy. I know it intimately. And I've come down to deliver them. This shows us that God is not just transcendent. He's just not above us. He's also among us. He's close enough to us. He's imminent. He's so close, he can hear and see and experience and, and do something about our suffering. God reveals to Moses that he has a plan to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and bring them to a good and prosperous land. And then here's the kicker, verse 10. He's telling him all that he's going to do. God says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. Here's, where, here's my heart, and here's my action. Here's my promise. And then verse 10, I'm going to use you to rescue my people. You're the man I've chosen to do it. Don't you love this? God is ascending God. He always has been. But this is surely not what Moses had in mind. Uh, this is an amazing thing. Burning bush, I don't know. That's kind of great, God, but like, you want me to go back to Egypt where I fled 40 years ago for killing a man? You want me to go back and talk to who? To Pharaoh? Do you know who you're talking to, God? Because I'm no liberator. I'm a failure. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? This is the question that Moses had been asking for a long time. We saw last week that Moses has, has been struggling with his, this idea of his identity. He has identity issues. He's insecure. Is he a Hebrew? Born to the Hebrews. He grows up in the palace of Egypt. Is he Egyptian? Now he's been living in Midian for 40 years. Is he a Midianite? I mean, what is he? Is he a shepherd or is he a murderer? Moses dealt with chronic insecurity. He needed constant reassurance. Most of us struggle with our sense of identity in life as well. Sometimes it's our failures. 
right? I'm known by what I've done wrong. I've known by how I've blown it in these ways. I'm known by these areas of weakness. Or maybe it's just a change of circumstance that causes us to kind of confront our identity. I'm single, but now I'm married, but now I have kids. So am I, who am I? My, my identity keeps changing. I was a student for many years. Now I'm, in a, now I'm a pastor. Who am I, right? Who, who are you? Your, your life station changes, and all of a sudden you got to ask yourself, who am I now? I was this, and now I'm this at work. So, what, what, is, did I change? Or did my title change? What happened? Who are you? You ever find yourself asking that question? Who are you? Who am I? Moses asks, who am I? And he's really saying, God, I'm not up for this task. I am entirely insufficient and ill-equipped for this thing you're asking me to do. Have you ever felt that way in life? Like, God would never want to use me to serve him. God, I, I could never serve in that ministry. I could never do that particular thing. Look, I've blown it. That's why. Look at look what I've done in life. Or, you, you make it, look at my body. Look at my salary. Look at my education. Look at my intellect. I'm clearly nothing special. You know, some of you know my story, right? I was going to be a medical doctor, and I, I, I think I had the kind of the mental capacity to do that, and I was excited about it, and, and I was, yeah, I was passionate about it. And when God called me into ministry, called me to preach, I'm like, God, I literally, as a kid said, as a, as a seven-year-old Christian, God, I'll do anything for you except this. Because that feels like Horrifying. Put me in an open body. Put me doing surgery. I don't know. Put me with people like that. Don't put me here. God says, oh, you want to tell me what you want me to do in your life? Is that how this works? I've been there. Moses says, I'll, I'll just watch over these sheep, God. I think you've made a mistake. Verse 12. He said, God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve or worship God on this mountain. Moses says, I'm not adequate, God. And notice God's response. His response is basically, no, but I am. Notice what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, oh, Moses, but look all your good qualities. I mean, you're, you've been faithful to, to, Midi, to the Jethro for all these 40 years. I mean, most of your sheep are still alive. You know, look at all the good things. No. He doesn't get into that. He doesn't say, of course you're up for the task. You can do it. No. I mean, he is sympathetic to Moses' inadequacy, but what, but what he's saying is, Moses is saying, you picked the wrong guy, and God says, listen, I know you're not up for the job. Don't you think I know that, that I know you before I chose you? I mean, do we think that when God calls us into something to serve him in a certain way or in a certain place or in a certain family or a certain part of ministry, do you think God doesn't know your insecurities and your inadequacies? Do you think he's surprised? Oh, wow, I didn't realize she struggles with that. I better rewrite my playbook here. <laughs> Woo, I'm glad she showed me. Now I know. Nope. Moses says, I'm inadequate. And God says, yeah, but I'm not. That's his answer. You're, of course you're inadequate by yourself, Moses, but with me by your side, I will be with you. You will have more than you will ever need. Do you believe that, Christian? 
That's why my, one of my light verses is 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where it talks about God's grace being sufficient for us, that his power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is the way of God. Weakness is how you experience the power and presence of God. If you say, I don't like it, I don't either. But I've not experienced God in ways so deep as I have than in my weakness. God says, I will be with you. God, God meets Moses' inadequacy with the promise of his own sufficiency. And his invitation to Moses is, and for us, will you believe my sufficiency is enough for you and will you respond in faith? That's what he's asking us to do. Will you find your identity in my self-sufficiency? Moses wasn't quite convinced yet. Not only does he ask God, who am I? Now he raises another concern. You say you'll be with me, God. Okay, well, who are you? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God's response goes beyond human comprehension. And that's because we usually define ourselves by something outside of ourselves, right? I'm a man. That's visible. You can see that. I am short. That's also visible. You can see that. I'm a pastor, right? Those are things that, that are kind of tangible outside of myself. But, but God's answer circles back on himself. That's because God is not defined by anything outside of, of himself. Look what he says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said to the Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, that's Yahweh. That's where we get the name Yahweh or King James will say Jehovah. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is my name forever. God defines himself by existence itself. I am who I am. Or I am. This phrase can mean multiple things. And, and scholars have written tons of books over centuries trying to figure out what does this mean? And, and it can mean, I have a picture of all the things it can mean, but I don't want to kind of freak you out. But basically it can mean I was who I was. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It could also mean I was who I will be, I am who I was, and I am who I will be. Are you confused yet? It can mean all of those things at the same time. God is revealing that he is self-sufficient. He is not reliant on anything outside of himself to exist. That's what's so unusual, unusual about the burning bush. Because in general, fire is dependent on fuel to burn. Right? So you put wood in a fire, it burns it. But this is not ordinary fire. This fire do doesn't depend on anything else to exist. It has an infinite source of being and power. That's why this fire is a picture of the self-sufficiency of God. Moses says, who are you? And God answers, basically, I am self-existent. I am existence itself. What does that even mean? There's such ambiguity in his revelation here that it points to our incredibly limited ability to understand God's greatness. 
by using a phrase that can mean all those things, God is simply saying, I am too big, too great for you to wrap your mind around, Moses. This is what makes God unique. Like I said, everything else in the world and the universe depends on outside factors in order to exist. And that, that's a law of science. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Something exists because it's depending on something else to make it exist. Food, water, air, oxygen, whatever, you name it. Everything exists because it's dependent on something else. And then God comes along and says, I'm the only being in the universe who is self-existent and self-sufficient. I depend on nothing for my existence. And most of us are like, I don't even know what that even means. If you're starting to scratch your head, good. As one pastor said, trying to understand the greatness of God is like trying to go fishing in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. I thought that was a good good way of explaining it. God is majestic and mysterious. You'll never totally figure him out. And part of what he wants you to do is not just and is not try to figure him out, but stand in awe of who he is. I know people who've gone to see the Grand Canyon. We've never seen it before. I, I hope one day too. But I, when you pull up to the Grand Canyon, you don't go, wow, I wonder what geological processes made this. I mean, what kind of rock is that? And, and you start, no, you go, whoa! Right? When I, when I was in Egypt and I visited my family and I saw the pyramids, my first thought wasn't like, I wonder kind of from a physics standpoint, how did they get those rocks? My first thought is, they're so much bigger than I ever realized. Why is this important for your life? To know God's majesty, his, his transcendence, his self-sufficiency. Because if God is existence itself, if he is the beginning and the end, if he is the one who holds everything else together, then here's what that means for you. It means the pressure's off. It means you don't have to rule the world. You see, the mystery of God can either fuel your doubts or it can bolster your wonder. There is a sovereign who is ruling over the nations. He is ruling over your employer. He is ruling over your family and over your very life. And that sovereign is not you. That's meant to be humbling and yet liberating. The universe doesn't revolve around me or you. The future of our nation doesn't revolve around who gets elected or not. The future well-being of your family doesn't revolve around whether you can make more money or put kids in the right school or whatever the things that I think will be most helpful. Those are important considerations, but they aren't ultimately determinative. That's really good news. Everything you have in life, everything you have worked hard for, your talents, your health, your opportunities, those are all gifts from God. None of that would be yours if he did not choose to give it to you. It's all been him. Yeah, I know that's humbling, but isn't it freeing too? You don't have to give in to worry and anxiety every single time something goes wrong. God was there before you, and I promise you he will be there in the end. 
You see, slowly as you find your identity in the self-sufficiency of God, you actually become more fully alive. You live life under the authority and and rule of, of God himself. Do you see how God doesn't deal with Moses' insecurities by teaching him about Moses? He, te- he deals with Moses' insecurities by teaching about himself. By focusing on who God is. Our confidence grows not by having a clear vi- view of ourselves, but by having a clear view of God first. Find your identity in the self-sufficiency of God. And lastly, delight in the wonderful nearness of God. Delight in the wonderful nearness of God. This text offers a unique glimpse of God's holiness and transcendence, his otherness, but it also gives us insight into God's imminence. That's another theological word. Imminence, it means his nearness. Transcendence, God is above us. Imminence, God is among us. Verse 7 and 8, it says God sees and God hears. He knows the affliction. That's a repeat of the end of chapter 2. He feels it. He feels the pain. But now he takes it even further. In his own words, he says, I have now come down to deliver them. God himself will come down, he says. In Exodus, his coming down will be through Moses as the mediator of his power and his deliverance. But Moses is a flawed man. He will falter and doubt and he's going to get angry and it will be abundantly clear God is the deliverer, not Moses. We see a heart, the heart of God to rescue and bring his people to himself. Moses leads the Israelites as a shepherd to the promised land, but he doesn't get to enter because he's not the ultimate deliverer. But he is a picture of the future deliverer. He is the picture of a greater shepherd 3,000 years later, another child will be rescued from death at birth, and he'll grow up in seemingly obscurity. And, and by the way, he'll have the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Yeshua is his name. And one day Jesus stands up and has the audacity to say this, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The people get what he's saying. He literally, no human in history has ever uttered the phrase in that way. The Jews took painstaking efforts to make sure they never wrote down or said the name Yahweh. I am the Lord. That's why they put Lord instead of Yahweh in the Old Testament because his name was too holy. It was to be revered. And they don't even ever, ever speak it. They don't even say the word 16 in the same way because it sounds too much like Yahweh. And then Jesus comes along and says, I, unless you believe that I am, that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. They were shocked. How could you say that you are the transcendent, infinite, self-existent God? But Jesus wasn't playing around with words. He didn't make a mistake. He knew that, yes, while we're not enslaved, his people, and while we are not enslaved in Egypt uh, anymore physically, he knew that we are enslaved to sin, which is an even greater, harsher taskmaster, because sin ultimately leads to separation from God. 
Make no mistake, Jesus came to be a deliverer. He came to be a rescuer, but he came to do it in the greatest way possible. And that's in his own words, that you will die in your sin unless you believe in him. And then Jesus, just to make it abundantly clear to them, to make sure they knew and we know that Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the burning bush kind of a God in, in Exodus 3. He, he finishes this, this sermon by saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying, and that's why they picked up stones to try to kill him on the spot. No one claims to be God himself. No one claims to be Yahweh. No one would even dare utter that name and claim it for himself. But Jesus does. Why does that matter? Because the fire of the burning bush drew Moses near, but it kept him at a distance. Why? Because the holiness of God would have consumed Moses as a sinner. But here we have Jesus. God says, I'm going to come down and rescue my people of Israel. Then he says, I'm going to come down and rescue my people, the whole world. And he comes down to us with Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And we have a Savior who's both God and man. He is holy yet human. And then when he goes to the cross, he experiences all the rejection, all the humiliation, all of the guilt that we deserve because of our sin. Jesus, Jesus literally became sin on the cross. And before the presence of God's holiness, what happened to Jesus? He was crushed. You see, God's holiness will either destroy sin or or embrace what is holy. And in, in the cross of Jesus, as he is becoming sin, the one who knew no sin, he was crushed. He was consumed. The fire of God's holiness couldn't help but consume and destroy that which was sin. Why is that so significant? Because now, now that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, he says, if you will believe in him, you won't die in your sins. If you will believe in him, he will draw near to you through faith in Jesus Christ. You will not be consumed. Jesus took our sin and he gives you his holiness as a gift. So that now through Jesus, you can not only draw near to God, get this, he actually indwells you. That's what it means to be a Christian, to experience the presence of God, not just near you, but inside you. It's your union with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? If Christ is in you, you can become a burning bush. You have the glory of God living inside of you, and it doesn't consume you. That's the gospel. That's good news. Are you experiencing God's presence today? That's my final question. I didn't just say, do you know God's presence? I mean, do you, do you, have you encountered God's beauty and holiness in a life-changing way? Jesus, God offers himself to you freely. And his invitation is, if you will turn aside, just like Moses, if you will turn from where you've been going and turn aside to him and turn aside to Jesus and receive his gift of eternal life, he grants you the gift of his holiness and now you can know God and not be consumed by God. Christian, do you believe God is working in your life? Does your heart need to be awed by the splendor of his holiness and transcendence once again? Maybe there's an insecurity you're dealing with. Maybe you, would need, maybe you need to write this out. I am not blank. I am not blank enough. I am not smart enough. I am not strong enough. I am not equipped enough. I can't do this. Whatever it is. And then you, right after that, here's what you can write. Yet in Christ, 
I am blank. In Christ, I am righteous. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am on mission. I have what it takes. You see, if God could take a doubting and insecure guy like Moses and shape him into a great leader, what could he do in your life with Jesus at the center? Let's pray. No, I'm sorry. I need to pray, okay? Thank you. Please, please sit down. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you that your word transforms and changes us. Lord, we are not the ultimate authority here. We are not in control. We thank you that you are. You are good. You are kind. You don't want to consume us. You want to rescue us. You want to make us your own. And you did it at the greatest cost to yourself, Jesus. God, whatever else might be going on in our lives right now, I pray that we would zero in on you, that we would focus our hearts on you. The great God who has made himself known. For those who need to turn to you now for the first time and receive your forgiveness, your gift, I pray they would cry out in faith. With whatever faith they can muster, we know it can be small, even as small as a mustard seed. God, for our church family, we thank you that you're working. But God, we need a, a, a greater vision of the majesty of God. We have a hundred lesser evils that can be taken care of, I believe, with a greater vision of who you are. Show us this, Lord. Show us yourself. Thank you that you want to make yourself known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.